So you're a grad student at ASU mm-hmm. in the Epic Lab. Yep. To be honest, this is the first time I've ever heard of the Epic Lab, but okay. it's already... Well, if you're not in the petrology world, probably yeah. you wouldn't have heard of it. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's the Experimental Processes... Wait, Experimental Petrology and Igneous Processes Center, mm-hmm. but the second P is silent. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be Epi- Epipic. Epipic. <laughs> yeah. I'm Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Star Trek Picard is in full swing, and I'm seeing so many fantastic posts on social media from fans and friends showing how they're watching and celebrating the new show. For instance, my Icelandic friend and guest on Strange New Worlds number 83, Hawker Goodmanson, rented an entire movie theater to host a viewing party in Reykjavik, where people gathered in costume to watch the first three episodes of Picard back to back to back. And the event even made the Icelandic news. Across the globe in Phoenix, Arizona. Another grassroots viewing party took place on the campus of Arizona State University. This event was co-hosted by my guest today, ASU graduate student Kara Brugman. I met Kara kind of by accident. Before we knew of each other's existence, we had each submitted abstracts to present our research at a conference called Exoplanets in Our Backyard, held in Houston and focused on linking solar system science to exoplanetary science and vice versa. Both Kara and I won travel funding for early career scientists to attend this conference, And one day I got an email asking me to fill out some travel documents. And of course, being the klutz that I am, I replied all to the email with my documents. Now, because my email signature has creator and co-host of Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast in it, I got a return email from one Kara Brugman, introducing herself as a fellow scientist and Trekkie. After just a few exchanges, it was settled. Upon getting to the Exoplanets in Our Backyard conference, we would record an episode of Strange New Worlds together to talk about the first few episodes of Star Trek Picard and Kara's incredibly cool research building exotic exoplanetary surfaces in her lab. We spoke together on the day that episode 3 of Star Trek Picard, titled The End is the Beginning, was released, but because of the hectic conference schedule, neither of us had seen it yet. So here's our conversation, the greatest result of a reply-all blunder in the history of humankind. Kara, why don't we start off with these legendary Arizona State University Star Trek screenings? (laughs) (laughs) Can you tell me a little bit about them, Um, maybe how they started and what they're like? 
Sure, so one of the professors at Arizona State in my department, the School of Earth and Space Exploration, also called CC, um, his name is Dave Williams, and he is a lifelong Trekkie. He is the president of the United Federation of Phoenix, Phoenix, which is, I think, the second longest running, continuously running Star Trek fan organization in the world. I thought you said Venus at first. No, 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 no. Phoenix, no. And that would like, be exciting Whoa. also. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, the United, United Federation of Phoenix. Um, so he is the one who actually organizes these screenings, and he's done ones before for Discovery, which I've also co-hosted with him, but most recently we did a screening of the premiere of Picard, which was our most attended screening. People were really excited for this show, and we have this giant theater where we have 3D planetarium shows in our building called the Marston Theater, and we actually sold it out, so it's almost 300 seats. That's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, I'm so jealous because the production quality of Star Trek TV shows these days is just so astounding. I almost feel like they need to be watched on the big screen. It, it was really impressive in there with the sound system. It makes me almost want to switch universities just to be <laughs> able to go to these screenings. Um, you mentioned that you co-hosted a panel discussion right before the Star Trek Picard premiere. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that about? Did it have a science connection? Um, not really, not so much. So we, we mostly talk about the history of the show and the history of the character Picard himself. And then after we watched the show, we talked about our thoughts and we have some other people in the Star Trek community around Phoenix who used to work on the show. So then they would chime in too about, about their thoughts. That's fantastic. Cool. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the role that Star Trek has played in your life? Well, the first time I saw Star Trek, I think it was, it must have been Next Generation on syndication. Flipping through the channels, I was probably six or seven years old. And at the time, I had never seen anything that looked like the show. The aesthetic of Next Generation is so different from other shows from the 80s or 90s. So it caught my eye right away. And then I kind of realized, oh my gosh, these are like space scientists and kind of like astronauts way out doing these really cool things. I had never seen the original series before. Um, that was my first exposure to Star Trek. And that was actually also my first exposure to the idea of actors are a thing because I was also at the time watching Reading Rainbow on PBS. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. Take a look, it's in a book, a Reading Rainbow. So I saw LeVar Burton on the show, and I'm like, hey, wait a minute, that's that guy from Reading Rainbow. How does he exist in these two realities at the same time? Yeah. And, and they actually had a behind-the-scenes episode of Reading Rainbow about the next generation, where he talked about how they did the effects and everything, and that got me really interested in television production. Um, so I got interested in the television production aspect of it before I was really thinking about the science. But as I look back, I realize that characters um, like Beverly Crusher and very much so Jadzia Dax from Deep Space Nine, these sort of strong female scientists as role models were something that played a big part in my young life because I didn't see any of those types of people where I was growing up. Right, right. I feel like people of our generation, Trekkies of our generation, have very similar stories. You know, the first episode of Star Trek that I watched was also a Next Generation episode, and I remember watching LeVar Burton on Reading Rainbow yeah. as well. Um, and yeah, it's interesting that you said that you're, you were first drawn to it from the production point of view. So was there ever a point in your life where you wanted to go into maybe acting or directing? Actually, like yes. So I did a lot of... Um, acting in our high school theater mm -hmm. as I was growing up, um, plays and musicals. 
and I actually went to film school. So my first undergraduate degree is in radio TV film production. I studied that at Northwestern University. I worked a little bit doing like really entry-level stuff at production companies, and then I realized that I missed science, so I decided to go back to school, and that's how I got into geology and planetary science. Got it. Okay. And so I've just been in school forever, <laughs> is the end of that story. I mean, same with me. I, I feel like I've been at a school of some kind ever since I was in kindergarten. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess, and, and you mentioned how Star Trek characters played a role in shaping mm-hmm. you as a young child. Did Star Trek also play a role as you were older and decided that you wanted to go back into science and the space science especially? It did. So around the same time that I was thinking really serious, well, I've been thinking for a while that I wanted to change careers. And when I started thinking about it really seriously, um, was about the same time that all of Star Trek got put on Netflix. Mm. And of course, I already had all of Deep Space Nine, the entire DVD collection. But it's a little, it's a little onerous to switch those DVDs out every four episodes because I would just <laughs> marathon, have it on in the background all day. So with Netflix, I could just have it on all the time. I watched all of Voyager for the first time. It was in syndication, and then I had moved away to a different market that didn't have that station in the middle of the show, so I never saw how it ended. Um, and that really re-sparked my interest in geology and specific space geology, aka planetary geology or exoplanet science, as we're moving into now. Definitely. So you mentioned to me over email that prior to the release of Star Trek Picard, you were cautiously optimistic <laughs> about the new show. I think everybody was cautiously optimistic. <laughs> yeah, I I really wanted to like Discovery, but I do not like Discovery. Um, and I think the thing I like most about Picard that I found the most surprisingly pleasing and reassuring about the premiere was this kind of return to the moral and ethical center of Star Trek that I grew up with. So there, there's a lot of moral ambiguity, particularly in Deep Space Nine and Voyager. They had some really good episodes addressing that. My favorite episode of Star Trek is, um, oh, what's it called? The Deep Space Nine episode where Cisco is talking to his personal log and then he deletes at the end. Oh, yeah, in the pale moonlight. In the pale moonlight, yeah. That's so my, a great my favorite episode of Star Trek is in the pale moonlight, which deals with this huge moral ambiguity. I lied. I cheated. I bribed men to cover the crimes of other men. I am an accessory to murder. But the most damning thing of all, I think I can live with it. And if I had to do it all over again, I would. Garrick was right about one thing. A guilty conscience is a small price to pay for the safety of the Alpha Quadrant. So I will learn to live with it. That's a more interesting and instructive and fruitful way to explore it than Discovery and to some extent some of the newer Star Trek movies have done. And I think reminding us of who Picard is as a person and how he represents this moral uprightness that we associate, or my generation associates with Starfleet, has been really comforting to -hmm. see. And I like that the show has a really slick aesthetic and they're incorporating, you know, these slightly darker storylines, but it still feels like it's rooted in, you know, we're Starfleet and we do what's right. You know, like the famous, you know, often like criticized Wesley line, like, we're in Starfleet, we don't lie. 
So that, that same kind of thing, like we're, we're in Starfleet, we don't lie, we try to protect people. Of course we're going to try to evacuate everyone we can from a planet, a system, an entire sector that's going to be devastated by, by this disaster. The Federation understood there were millions of lives at stake. Romulan lives. No, lives. So I'm really looking forward to see what's coming next. I know that the first three episodes are designed to be kind of like a one and a half hour movie where they're all you know, three parts of the same story. So the second episode was a lot of setting things up and moving characters into place and not a lot of things actually happened in it. Yeah. But I'm really looking forward to see in the third episode how those things all come together. Mm-hmm. We yeah. haven't even met a third of the cast yet. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> it's taken a really long time to get the, I guess, quote unquote, crew together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Yeah, so let's switch over to the research that you do over at Arizona State University, Mm -hmm. and then we'll circle back to Star Trek. Um, So you are a petrologist, and can you tell our listeners what that really means? Because I feel like, and you made a joke about this yesterday (laughs) in your talk at this conference, that people often mistake petrology for for something else. Right. So if people have heard of petrology, usually they think it has to do with oil and gas exploration, which that's petroleum geology. So petrology is the study of what rocks are made of and where they come from. I'm an igneous petrologist, which means I study rocks that come out of volcanoes. I study essentially lava and magma and melting of the Earth's mantle and the Earth's crust. And I'm applying those same techniques that we use to study Earth to studying exoplanets, which are planets that are orbiting other stars. Yeah, so not just the rocks here on Earth, but also Mm -hmm. the rocks that might be on the surfaces of planets that are so far away that unless we invent warp drive pronto, (laughs) our generation at least will never get to set foot on those planets or ever get samples from them. So how do you study the rocks of planets that are so, so far away? Well, we don't know what the compositions of these planets far, far away are for sure, but we do have a pretty good idea of the composition of the stars that they're orbiting. And based on the relationship between the composition of our star, the sun, and the planets in our solar system, we can apply those same rules to these stars far away and try to infer a composition for a rocky planet that might be around that star. So we take that, what we call a starting composition, this whole planet composition, and then I make basically a copy of it with oxide powders, sort of tiny ground up chemical powders. Um, I put that inside a machine called a piston cylinder apparatus, which applies really high temperatures and pressures, simulating a sample that's being buried maybe in the crust of the earth or all the way down into the mantle. Can you describe what one of those machines looks like? Yeah, there's a couple of different kinds of them. Two of ours are very old, they were built in the 60s, so when the piston cylinder was first developed, we have a newer one, very slick, named Rosie, who's all blue. Rosie. <laughs> and it's basically uh, two giant hydraulic rams. One is coming from the top and holding the whole experimental stack together, sort of applying a confining pressure, we would say, so that the stack doesn't basically come apart when we're applying pressure to the sample. We want everything to stay in place and not have some kind of horrible explosion in our lab. And then we have another piston that's pushing from the bottom, which is actually pushing on the sample itself. And because um, you know pressure scales with surface area, the samples are really, really tiny to get those pressures to be correct for the depths we want to study. Okay, so let me see if I can summarize what mm-hmm. I got from that. So basically, by knowing the composition of stars, you can estimate the composition of the planets that orbit those stars because they all sort of formed together. Correct. Uh, and then you mix 
the, the chemicals that you want, the mineral forming chemicals that you want into a tiny, tiny sample and then mm -hmm. squeeze it to big pressures to yep. basically pretend you're in a volcano of that planet? Ooh, even deeper than a even volcano. Even deeper, okay. Mm -hmm. An area of the planet where, where rock is essentially just melting and mm -hmm. staying there? Okay. Pretty much. Okay, okay, cool. And so what actually happens inside of that chamber? The, the, the things melt and then you take them out and you... Right, so the, everything, the powder is melting, and it's forming minerals, specific kinds of minerals, and hopefully also some part of it that's melted is not forming a mineral. That's what we're interested in, because that extra melted part, that's what's going to kind of coalesce and rise to the surface of this exoplanet and maybe become the lava that spreads out on the surface and creates a new surface. So that's how we get from the composition of a star to the composition of the surface of these exoplanets. Got it. So essentially, rocks melt under high pressure and temperature, and the part of those rocks that, that melt and don't remain crystallized is what comes out of volcanoes mm -hmm. on the surface. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that all makes sense now. Okay, great. And so from your experiments, what have you learned about uh, the surfaces of these exoplanets so far? So far, what we've learned is that changing sort of the proportions of the ingredients that make up these planets don't affect the surface compositions, those lava compositions, in the way that we expected. There are a lot of shorthand and rules of thumb that we use in petrology um, because we're so used to thinking about the way the Earth works, but when they apply them to other planets that have way different compositions from our planet and from our sun, we get some results that are kind of weird. Like if we increase one of the building blocks, you would think maybe we would get a mineral that has a lot of that in it, and that's not necessarily what we're seeing. So can you give me an example of one of those building blocks and then the result being surprising? Sure, so calcium is an element that's really important to the formation of what we call silicate melts. These are just the normal melts that you get from melting a rock that you might find in your backyard. And if we increase the calcium content for this hypothetical exoplanet to be much higher than what we find on Earth, my expectation would be that the mineral that forms in these experiments that tends to incorporate a lot of calcium, that we just grow a lot of that mineral. And we actually found that we grow a little bit more of that mineral than Earth, but not very much, just 2% more. Instead, we're seeing a lot of that calcium, that extra element, is going into the lava that's going to come out onto the surface. Ah, so the rocks on the surface of the planet that formed from volcanoes will then be very, very calcium enriched. Calcium rich, right. Oh. Even more so than the melts that we're able to look at in our own solar system on other planets like Mercury and Venus. So you're getting to know these strange new worlds in your lab by simulating <laughs> uh, the processes that builds rocks here on Earth, but relevant to other worlds. Exactly. We're basically doing experiments to create the new data that we'll use to make new models to be able to study exoplanets based on their star's composition. Right now, we have a lot of star compositions. We can't possibly do experiments on every single possible exoplanet that will be around them. But we can change element proportions a little bit, those building blocks for these planets, and try to constrain end member compositions. Those are gonna help us make better models. So Starfleet was founded to explore strange new worlds and also to seek out new life. <laughs> and you've successfully brought those strange new worlds into your lab. How might your experimental results influence the types of life that we might expect to be out there on those different kinds of planets? 
Okay, so what I'll say up front, I'm not a biologist, I'm not an astrobiologist, but I do know that something that's really important for the sustainment of life is this ability to cycle elements. So if you have a planet that's rocky, there are elements, specifically things like potassium, that are really important for life as we know it. If they get buried in rocks over time, then eventually those aren't available to be used by microbes on the surface anymore. So if a planet has volcanism, then that means that we're getting those, those nutrients, those nutrient elements that have been buried back up to the surface so that life forms can use them again. So if we're able to fingerprint volcanic activity on these exoplanets, which we might be able to do, there's new missions, uh, the James Webb Space Telescope and Ariel, that we think will be able to give us compositions of atmospheres. If those can see volcanic signatures in those atmospheres, that's a hint to us that, hey, we could have that element cycling on these planets, and so microbes might be able to exist for a long period of time. I see, because life needs some of these nutrients that actually come from the solid part of our planet. And uh, if life is, say, limited by a certain type of nutrient, but you can show that that element is actually very prevalent in the lavas that form the rocks on that planet, then that's great for life. Exactly, because it's not enough for life to have just come about on a planet. If it can't be sustained over a long period of time, then that's no good to us if we ever hope to go there in the future after we've built warp drive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so you also study volcanoes here on Earth, specifically Yellowstone. Um, so is there anything that you want to say about that kind of research? Like what questions are you asking of Yellowstone and how you go about answering them? Uh, Yellowstone is not going to erupt anytime soon. <laughs> everyone, everyone can stay calm. It's not going to happen. Um, it's, it's highly unlikely that Yellowstone will erupt in the next... 100,000 years. And most of the eruptions that Yellowstone has aren't the big, scary, explosive ones. They're these crazy eruptions of really viscous lava. So it creates like a couple hundred foot high, almost cliff of lava that moves really slowly across the landscape. So it would still be a big deal, but it's not the same kind of instant catastrophe as we see in a lot of disaster movies. Um, so my last question for you is about volcanoes in Star Trek. And unfortunately, I don't know why, but we don't really see that many volcanoes in Star Trek. I mean, there are a few examples. Yeah, they flew, they flew the Enterprise in and out of a volcano at the very beginning of the last movie. Oh, of uh, Into Darkness? Uh, the one from, from 2013. Right? It's like Spock uh, had to drop in and do his cold fusion thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah that exactly. Was a little bit crazy. Yeah. I guess that is the best example of a volcano in Star Trek. <laughs> um, but if you were to write or to scientifically advise the writers to put a volcano into Star Trek or to put some kind of rock forming event into Star Trek or to go visit one of these new worlds that you've been simulating in the lab, what do you think mm. you would want to see? Well, what comes to mind is a volcano that we saw yesterday at the conference in Tanzania, which is a carbon volcano. Ooh. It's erupting carbonatite, which is not a silicate, so not a rhyolite or a basalt, or if you're familiar with those types of rock names. This is a lava that's almost entirely made of carbon without any silicon in it, and it's really striking to look at. So visually, it would be very cool on the screen. It erupts this black carbonatite lava, and as it cools, it turns white. So there's a really interesting color contrast between the different ages of the flows that you see around it. Um, I think there could be some interesting implications about 
life that comes about on a planet that's that carbon rich. Again, I'm not a biologist, but it seems like there's some pretty interesting implications there. Yeah, you could have some wild kind of chemistry going yeah. on. I mean, when I think of rock creatures, I always think of the Horda from the original Star Trek series. Me too. That is the first original series episode I ever watched. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's one of my favorites just because, well, one, the Horda looks like a, a, a rag. <laughs> somebody has literally... It's like a carpet that looks kind of like a, a pizza. Car- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> a pizza carpet and somebody is obviously yeah. underneath. Um, but also it's just that thinking outside the box about it, the ways that life can be chemically. The Horda mm-hmm. is a silicon-based life form because I guess on its planet, just like for the majority of Earth, rocks are silicates. Um, but yeah, you're right. If, if it was a carbon-rich planet, then the minerals are, have a lot of carbon in them. That's a completely different kind of yeah. chemistry going on there. I've been thinking a lot during this conference about the habitable zone, mm-hmm. the area around a star where it's possible for liquid water to exist. And I'm thinking about how how limited we are in our perspective about what life is. Yes. And there could be all these other planets that have types of life that we're not able to detect. And I, I wonder what we're missing out on. Absolutely. That is such a great point that we are so narrowly focused on life like our own. Um, And when somebody talks about the potential for life, the origin of life, habitable planets, it's really all only in the context of life as we know it, Mm -hmm. as we are. But when you start thinking of planets that have different chemical compositions, right? Like maybe slight deviations um, in terms of their calcium abundance, or maybe huge ones in the fact that carbon is more abundant on those planets than than oxygen or something like that, then you get a completely different space that you need to explore. And I'm just excited for what we find out there. Me too. (laughs) Well, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds, Kara. It was a pleasure talking to you, getting to know you at this conference, and to learn a little bit about your research. Same. Thank you for having me. That was Kara Brugman, a graduate student in experimental petrology at Arizona State University. Besides learning about her fascinating research, I loved learning about Kara's personal story and the ways in which Star Trek has shaped her life. She reminds me that there is no one journey to becoming a scientist. Some people go straight into grad school after majoring in a scientific field in college. Others spend a few years playing in a band before they decide that what they really want to do is science. Others teach first or serve in the military. Kara did radio and TV production. Knowing about all of these different paths makes me realize that we're all scientists inside, even those of us who will never wear the title of scientist. As long as you feed that curiosity, activate your critical thinking, and keep an open mind, you are a scientist. So keep on gazing at that night sky. Nearly every star up there has a planet orbiting it. Maybe one of them has a weird chemical composition that Kara is exploring in her lab. And maybe On that planet, there's another scientist, curious about rocks, mixing chemicals to simulate the strange terrestrial geology of that blue-green world called Earth. Until next time, see you out there.
There are elements, specifically things like potassium, that are really important for life as we know it. If they get buried... What, what is, is that? that? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a jackhammer. But... <laughs> or like um, when we turn on our hydraulic pump, it sounds kind of like that. Mm. Maybe it's that. I think that there's a, maybe they're doing experiments in there. But isn't this just a room inside the library? You, I think so. I don't know what happens in this place, to be honest. Yeah.